Thank you. It's so good to be back at my favorite church and my favorite hometown. I actually have many hometowns. Um, and part of the great things about being a Christian is that in every hometown, I'm a foreigner, but also in every home, uh, foreign land, I am at home because we have a better home that we are waiting for and because this is the Father's world. Uh, for the last 10 years, I've been a missionary in Asia. And what's really wonderful about this is that wherever I go in Asia, people will be like, you know, there's this Canadian pastor who's in town, and he's actually Asian. And they'd be like, whoa. <laughs> and when I come back to Canada, people will be like, you know, there's this Asian pastor in town. He's actually from China. And people will be like, whoa. <laughs> All right, so uh, enough about myself. Uh, our title for the sermon today is Self-Denial and Freedom in Christ. And the scripture is what we just read from Genesis 3. So in Genesis 2, you'll remember God created Adam and Eve, and he created the, the uh, Garden of Eden. He placed Adam in the paradise. And in the garden, there's this tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When God created Adam, he gave him something called the power of choice. Adam was able to choose to obey God or not to obey God. Now, make no mistake, the power of choice is not to be confused with freedom. God is perfectly free. And being perfectly free, he cannot choose to be unholy because he cannot change. And we who are created in his image are truly free only when our decisions, our choices, our acts conform completely to that image and likeness. So God said to Adam in verse 16, uh, Genesis 2, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And then God created Eve to be his wife. Verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They felt no shame because before the fall of man, human nature was created to be good. And nothing in God's good creation needed to be covered up. Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. And then we proceed to Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. You see, the, the serpent started talking to Eve for a purpose, and the purpose was to lure Eve and Adam into temptation. And the first step was to arouse doubt in the Word of God by adding something to the Word of God. God told Adam that he and Eve could eat of any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And the serpent is very crafty. He didn't say to Eve, well, did God really say that you must not eat of any tree? Or you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Instead, the serpent said, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, so the serpent begins by saying, did God really say? And he inserts something that God never said. It's like, imagine you go to Mark's house, and he tells you, well, you're free to eat anything in the fridge, but just don't eat a cake, because the cake is for my birthday. Uh, His birthday is coming up, by the way. Um, You can eat anything, but just don't eat a cake. And you say, okay, that sounds fair. And then there's this evil Asian guy named Alex who wants to convince you that Mark is cheap and he doesn't like you. So Alex tells you, hey, did Mark really tell you not to eat anything in the fridge? See, I told you he's a miserly man. And then you start to think to yourself, hey, what did Mark really say? And you start to get confused. And that's what happened to Eve. She started to get confused. And when she was confused, instead of going back to Adam to ask him what God really said, because God entrusted the word to Adam before he created Eve, right? Instead of going to Adam or going to God, Eve started using her own imagination and speculation. She trusted in herself. She didn't trust in God and she didn't trust the man to whom God entrusted the original command. And the thing is, Eve was not yet created when God gave Adam the instructions. So in order to find out what God really said, she should have asked Adam. But instead, she decided to turn to herself, to the putatively autonomous ego. And she effectively said to the serpent, verse 2, Well, no, God is not as cheap as you say he is. But I think you are partly right, serpent. God, God did say you must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it either, or you will die. Now, but is that what God said to Adam? Did God tell Adam not to touch the fruit? No. God only told him not to eat the fruit. He didn't say anything about not touching it. But instead of going back to what God actually said, Eve used her own speculation to add her own words to the word of God. And why is that? Because she started to lose her trust in God. God only said, you shouldn't eat. God never said, you shouldn't touch. But she, she felt that the first command was insufficient. She felt that she had to add something to it to make herself feel free or feel safe instead. Now, that's legalism. Legalism, the essence of legalism, is not trusting in the sufficiency of the Word of God. And that was the first step in the fall 
of our ancestors. So the serpent saw that his initial step had succeeded, and he went on to say to Eve in verse 4, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So in this second step, the serpent lures the woman into uh, denying the necessity and the authority of the word of God. Now what is this? This is, in theological terms, antinomianism. Now if you haven't heard the word, it's the title of a book that Mark has written years ago. A really good book, you should read it. Uh, that word basically means being opposed to the law of God. So Eve gave up her absolute trust in the command of God, in the word of God. And verse 6, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. You see, God entrusted the instructions, the command to Adam, and Adam, as a man, as the husband, was supposed to take responsibility and stop Eve from eating the fruit. But instead of being a true man, he decided to give in to the temptation and follow Eve, who followed the serpent. And verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked. So they sewed thick leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So what's with this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Does it have magical powers? Well, my former Old Testament professor, Phil Long, uh, had this splendid take on the meaning of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He thinks it's better translated as the, the tree of knowing good and evil. Now, the original Hebrew for the word knowing or knowledge carried the connotation of choosing and being committed to something. And the act of eating from this tree is to declare that something is good or evil not because God calls it good and evil. God is good not because God is good in and of himself. God is good because we call him good. Good is good, evil is evil because we call them good and evil. God has made me to be a man. That was God's gracious choice. And when I live as a man, when I live in accordance with biblical ideals of masculinity, I am truly free. Adam chose not to be a true man. I don't get to choose my own gender, you see. We don't get to call men women and call women men. When we start going down that road, what we end up with is not liberty, but bondage, the bondage of sin. I was at this conference down in San Diego back in 2009 and I met a scholar from Harvard. Now, her ideology was extreme woke. 
she was rambling on about equity practices at Harvard, including race and gender disparity. So I asked her, hey, if I were an African-American woman, do you think I'll stand a chance to become a Harvard professor, given my academic credentials? Uh, and she was being polite. Um, she said, yeah, I think you have a chance. Uh, I don't think I stand a chance, but she was being polite. So I, I pursued a conversation. I asked her, and you support disparity for all genders, including transgenders, don't you? Yeah, definitely I do, she says. So you believe a person's identity is self-determined, self-defined? Yes. So gender is a choice? Yes, she says. And I asked her, say, if I identify as an African-American woman, can you give me a job at Harvard? I said, I <laughs> get lost. She took it as a joke. She was assuming that I wasn't being antisocial. You see, it was by God's choice that I was born as an Asian man and not an African-American woman. I am truly free only when I accept my identity as given by God's gracious election. God is the only one whose identity is self-defined or self-determined as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is love. He is the lover. He is the beloved. He is the act of love. And He is who He is. God is to Moses, I am, I am. And aside from God, there is no being that is being itself, that is immediately self-identical. There's no immediate self-identity in any creature. Immediate self-identity resides with God alone. And we become what we are as creatures only in relation to God and to other creatures. I am a husband in relation to my wife. I am a son in relation to my parents. I don't have children yet. Uh, when we make even the slightest attempt at self-definition, at defining our own identities, we start to play God. We, started to, to, we start to try to be as God. And that was the original sin of our ancestors. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and thereby they declared that good and evil, male and female, and everything else are just what we call them. And the next thing, they started to hide from God. Verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God, and he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. They were hiding from God. They pretended that God couldn't see them. They tried to live as if God doesn't exist. Otherwise, they couldn't continue to pretend to be gods. But the thing is, even as believers, we still do that sometimes, don't we? We try to live as if our Father weren't watching us and watching over us. Now, don't ever toy with the thought 
that we can play hide and seek with God. God shall not be deceived. Adam and Eve started to hide from God, but, verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And this is the turning point of the story, a turning point in the history of mankind. Just when Adam started to hide from God, God came looking for Adam. Now that's the starting point of salvation. That's the starting point of redemptive history. That's the starting point of our knowledge of God. God comes looking for us so that we can know Him. The first thing that God did was to expose the sins of Adam and Eve. Adam said to God, verse 10, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And God said, verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And instead of answering the question, instead of admitting that he was guilty, Adam said in verse 12, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Remember when God first made Eve, Adam loved her so much, he said, this is now the bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. But now this self-giving love has been twisted by sin. It has become self-seeking and self-centered blaming. The woman you put here with me. It's all her fault. You put her here, God. Uh, I didn't want her. You put her here. And now look what she has done. I'm fallen with her. It's all blaming. It's all self-centeredness. Adam blames Eve and Eve blames the serpent. None of them wants to repent. But God cannot be deceived. So God punishes the man and the woman accordingly. But God is also gracious. Right after he exposed the sins of Adam and Eve, he promised them salvation in Christ. In verse 14, God cursed the serpent. And in verse 15, God promises salvation. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, of course, the offspring of the uh, the woman refers to Jesus. And the serpent will strike his heel. And that refers to the ostensible victory of sin and death over Christ at the cross. It's just a wound on the heel. But Christ will crush the head of the serpent. He has crushed the head of the serpent. He will kill the serpent for good. He will crush the power of sin and death that once boasted dominion over every one of us. And then in verse 21, God made garments of animal skin for Adam and Eve. Remember, uh, Adam and Eve tried to cover their shame with fig leaves. They were useless. We all have these pathetic thick leaves with which we try to cover our shame, don't we? And our guilt. The things that make us proud. Pride. Well, 
these things can actually be good things, to be sure. And the things that make us proud can sometimes make us proud in a godly way. Uh, Galatians 6.4 says that we should take pride in examining what God has done in our lives. But the Christian life, you see, is not a life of self-affirmation. It's not a life of celebrating your self-defined identity. It's not a life of celebrating pride that arises from self-defined identity. The Christian life is a life defined by our Lord Jesus Christ. And as such, the Christian life is a life of self-denial. It's a life of daily renewal through repentance. I have been crucified with Christ, says Paul in Galatians 2. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a life of being justified and being sanctified by grace. And no, sanctification is not just getting used to being justified. Christ dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul urges in Galatians 5, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You are not under the law, that is to say, you are free in Christ. But if you are free in Christ, you are not to do whatever you want, says Paul. Rather, you are to keep in step with the Holy Spirit and obey the law of God out of love and not out of fear. Out of this, the, the, the desire to please God, not out of fear of punishment and condemnation, but out of a kind of fear that is loving. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. Now, and this desire to please God should also translate to a desire to mortify sin and that desire should be driven by our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Remember, God came looking for Adam and Eve and saw them covered in their miserable fig leaves, their miserable attempts at self-affirmation. Take them off, says God. Take off those useless fig leaves because God will make something for us to cover our sins then God made a blood sacrifice in order to cover the sins of our ancestors. That was the first blood sacrifice in human history for signifying the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, even our attempts at self-denial can sometimes become inadvertent self-affirmations if they are not driven by relentless focus on Jesus Christ. 
The Puritan theologian John Owen wrote that only by the death of Christ is sin revealed to be, I quote, poison, a stench, dung, vomit, polluted blood, a plague, a pestilence, an abominable, detestable, cursed thing which by its most pernicious power of metamorphosing hath transformed angels into devils, light into darkness, life into death, paradise into a desert, a pleasant, fruitful, blessed world into a vain, dark, accursed prison, and the Lord of all into a servant of servants. And only in Christ, who is the Lord who became a servant of servants, do we become truly free, free from sin and free for God. And let's now conclude with an exhortation from Hebrews 12, 1-3. Let us now throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the freedom that you have given us in Jesus Christ, your Son. And please, by your Holy Spirit, help us to discern the false promises of this world, the false promises of pride, of self-identity, of false liberty, and remind us that only in Christ, in Him alone, are we truly free. And please remind us always with your Holy Spirit of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ so that in our daily lives, we testify to that hope that we have in Jesus Christ for those who are looking for hope in false places. Turn our eyes on your promise, the freely given promise of the truth that you have revealed in Jesus Christ, sealed upon our hearts and revealed to our minds by the Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.